You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer. Uh, who I think who's going to be doing quite a bit of the talking this episode because we are going to discuss clinical applications of carb night and carb backloading, which is really something that I don't think we've ever covered in depth. We've hinted at it. Uh, We've talked about these programs uh, being used by Rocky uh, with his patients and also with himself and a lot of the work he's done to find adequate blood metrics to really analyze the health of somebody outside of the context of the Western diet, which just makes everybody sick in the first place. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to kind of make, put Rocky on the spot on this one since he never talks very much on these damn things ever. I may not talk very much on this one either, but we'll try. Oh, you're going to be forced or there's going to be a lot of dead air. <laughs> I mean, pretty much we would, we could replace you with Cooper for some episodes. And he, he can't, like, he doesn't even bark. Yeah, well, you know, he makes a little pitter-patter sound with his legs, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> All right. So let's, you know, uh, we actually had a pre-conversation uh, about a week ago when we talked to Nina Teicholz. And uh, it, it was such a great conversation, we didn't record it, which is a shame. So I kind of just want to start back there because I don't know if a lot of people know about Rocky's background with, uh, ketogenic diets or carb night or even carb backloading. Right. So I'm just going to have Rocky start. Basically, why don't you give us your history? Because uh, I, I don't even know how much the audience even knows that at one time uh, you were fairly portly, I, I will say to put it nicely. So why don't you just, let's just start there. You know, how long ago did you decide to tackle that problem? Yeah, oh, frankly, I was actually probably obese, um, like <clears throat> many Americans. But um, probably coming out of residency, shortly thereafter, I probably hit a maximum weight of about 260 pounds, and I'm about 5'10", um, probably just from stresses of becoming uh, coming out of residency, stresses of family life, going out to eat too much, too much alcohol, all those kind of factors. And I also played soccer, which was kind of my first love, in terms of sporting events, and I was starting to suffer on my my uh, on the field, and so what you mean you couldn't sprint fast enough with two hundred and sixty pounds of of weight, which I assume not not a high percentage of muscle, is that correct? Uh, correct, but you know it was playing against like twenty years twenty year olds, so oh, <laughs> that doesn't really help the the, the ego there. So right. so you know I I went kind of down this journey of my own, looking and trying to lose weight, and did all kind of all the all the normal stuff that most patients do or most consumers do, you know, doing low fat, weight watchers, low calorie, and really kind of just bounced around doing a lot of yo-yoing. And um, in my family history, which I've always talked about is pretty significant for coronary disease and diabetes. And and when I actually, when I went back and looked at some of my labs from back then, it was pretty scary. I mean, I was was close to being diabetic probably, or if I actually did a two-hour glucose tolerance test, I'm sure I probably would have failed at that time. Uh, which is basically a gold standard for diagnosing type two diabetes. So what, you know, obviously, well, like, did you, did you just recognize it in yourself when you were looking at that blood work, or 
you know, was it blood work that made you kind of decide to change course or was it how you felt and how you could perform in your everyday life? Like what was the, the triggering event? Well, I was pretty sedentary, so performing in my everyday life was just going to the office and seeing patients. <laughs> I mean, so that wasn't really the issue. Right. The issue was uh, is that I really couldn't maintain my, the level of performance I wanted to do when I was playing soccer. And so, unfortunately, as sad as that may sound, it wasn't the labs, it wasn't the blood sugar, it wasn't my elevated triglyceride or my family history that really kind of got me off my rear. Uh, it was the fact that um, it was affecting my ability to play. And so... I looked at different ways and I kind of, you know, I'll, we all kind of battle with weight at some point or another. And I've always kind of, it's been kind of a work in progress, but again, I've tried things like Weight Watchers and, you know, I did the South Beach diet and I did a, a miserably failed attempt at Atkins for about 48 hours <laughs> <laughs> along the way. And then, um, I read a more of a, as, as I continued to kind of yo-yo, I eventually kind of whittled down to about the mid two twenties and plateaued and really couldn't make much headway and i'd get down to like maybe like 215 and bump back up to 220 and this kind of went on for about a year or so and um started reading about lower carbohydrate diets um i think in 2005 i read good calories bad calories which was gary tobbs's book so that kind of um opened up kind of a can of worms <clears throat> and so as i started trying to look at more of a lower carbohydrate diet um i just wasn't very good at it and so, uh, about 2005, 2006, I actually went solo and went into, into a private practice, which really didn't help the stress levels. And I continued to have these issues and I came upon, um, a book, um, that was written by a cardiovascular surgeon and it was basically, uh, basically a low carbohydrate diet and that it phased to like a raw food diet over a period of time. And I just kind of stayed, I just kind of took the low carb approach and took that initial part of his diet and ran with it. And, uh, I tell you the first four days were miserable because it was just basically meat, vegetable and nuts. And I had and very little, you know, very little usable carbohydrate. And I think I remember coming home from work. This is probably like circa 2007, 2008 and coming home from work on those three days and just, I'd be in bed by seven because I was just so, I felt like crap, uh, so, it's, you know, if you want to call that induction flu or whatever you want, that low-carb flu, or you want to call it, but it, it was just, it was nasty. So, um, but once I got past it, um, you know, things were much better, and I had a lot more energy, and um, I really felt the difference from a, from a health perspective. I didn't realize how poorly I felt until I started feeling better after I kind of went through that first four to five days. So there's a couple things in there that I think are interesting. Is One, the triggering event was not brought about by you know, any signs of imminent danger. It was, there was something you enjoyed doing that you couldn't do as well anymore. Correct. Which, you know, it's hard for a lot of people to find. And I think that's a common story. It's usually not, oh, I got scared. You know, I know a guy who had a heart attack and quit smoking for two months, but then decided, you know, it was just too big of a deal to give up smoking. And then had another heart attack, I think six months after that. And quit smoking again for a couple of months, but then started right back up because, you know, it wasn't worth it. There was nothing in that scenario. There was nothing in his life that he couldn't do that, you know, even two heart attacks didn't scare him. And I, you know, I think that emphasizes that if, unless it's something that you, that is limiting you in some way, you know, I just, I don't think a lot of people are going to change it anyway. Well, I think what's even scarier though is, is that some people, and like I say, some patients will 
they'll find an activity that they can't do anymore. And as opposed to kind of saying, okay, what can I do to keep doing it? They just stop doing it. And so uh, they almost make it a, a vicious cycle in that way because they stop doing that activity and they do less and it makes their disease process worse, but they feel so crappy that they don't want to continue to try doing anything else. And they continue to do less and less and less until they get to a point where, you know, they're, they're stuck. Um, so I see that scenario a lot as well. So, um, but like I said, um, that, yeah, it should have been the lab work and it should have been, you know, everything else that I knew from a medical standpoint that triggered everything. But of course, you know, well, yeah, you're a doctor, you're you're in denial, (laughs) you're supposed to look at that. (laughs) Well, we're the worst patients. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually the case. I couldn't imagine somebody trying to like coach me on diet. It would be an absolute disaster. Um, so along that way, you know, I, I, along that process, I even, you know, I even had my carotid artery scan in 2006, right? So I had my carotid artery scanned. I think then I was like in my mid thirties and my vascular age was like 47. And then I even had a small little uh, plaque in my left carotid bulb. So I had some signs of vascular disease. And that, that <laughs> still was not the trigger. It was soccer. It was soccer. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> at least that's something. Right? You know, at least something made you change if it wasn't everything else. Well, my carotid wasn't stenosed. It didn't have a blockage. Right. So, <laughs> Come so on. of course, it's, it's still, you've got another like 10 or 15 years to run on that thing. Yeah, right. That's perfect. And so, you know, you're at the point now where you just kind of, you stayed on that ketogenic diet. You didn't shift to the complete, what was it, basically a vegan it was, um, it was yeah, it, there, it hits several phases where you eventually get into a phase where you're eating basically kind of raw food. Yeah. Okay. So I, ne- I never really get my weight goal, so I never really made it to that kind of phase of the, of the plan. And I actually had plateaued on the plan as well. So I, I would get down probably close to like 205, 206, but then I'd bump back up to 212. And obviously that would be part of that's going to be compliance and, you know, cheating and whatnot that goes along with that type of thing. So then when did you come across my stuff like carb night and, and we'll lead this into, you know, your clinical applications thereof too. Yeah, probably like, um, end of 2010 beginning in 2011. Uh, I distinctly remember a tweet that Dave Asprey put out about your carb backloading book. Uh, and it was before it actually even came out, but, uh, so I kind of went sniffing around and, um, looked at your website and then I, you know, I was looking for carb backloading, but it wasn't out yet. So, um, I, I saw you had carb night I'm like, well, what the hell is this? So I, I downloaded it and, and no, I don't know if I don't, I think I downloaded it and then I bought it on the Amazon as well. Cause I like the paper copy and uh, read it, devoured it in probably like two hours. And I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to try doing. And, and that was after a failed attempt of, uh, what carb loading was described as in some of the articles that you had. So before I even tried carb night, I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm working out at the gym a couple of days a week and lifting weights. I'm going to backload. <laughs> and I think I remember one of the descriptions of, you know, eating Wendy's after your workout. And I'm like, well, hell, I'm just going to eat Wendy's after my workout. <laughs> How could that be wrong? <laughs> so um, that, that was a miserable failure. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that was what was one of the funny things is, you know, the, the case study in the book is, you know, he was a strength coach and he was eating Wendy's every night. And yeah. And leaning out, but you're talking about somebody lifting a lot of weight who had a lot of muscle mass anyway. And um, it was just sarcopenic meat. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> it's funny. And, you know, we've both talked about that, how difficult it is to get people to understand the right context that they fit into. Like car backloading is definitely not for everybody the way it's written. It's written for athletes. End of story. 
Um, and, and carbonate, I, you know, sometimes I feel like it's so generic that, uh, you know, it's too applicable in a sense, you know, people, it could be used for so many different things, but the, each one has its own little ambiguity to it. Yeah. I mean, I think it almost seems like there probably needs to be, um, a third book that goes in between somewhere in there. Well, CBL, CBL two covers all of it. Okay. It, it, you know, it's hard for me to even call it CBL two because it's kind of basically how to use carbs for performance period, no matter what type of performance that is. So it does cover some aspects of carbonite for performance and carb backloading as well. Whereas a new book about health would then cover more things in that topic. So, yeah, so I, I, I think I tried carb backloading for like two weeks and gained like 10 pounds or something like that. I don't know, something like, I don't remember, but I, I just remember it was like, this is bullshit. It's not working. So, <laughs> but I, I got carb night and, um, started doing carb night and cause I, I, you know, I still, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fat kid at heart and I like eating stuff and, you know, donuts taste good, you know, pizza tastes good. So, um, I, I was able to kind of incorporate that, um, plan and um, I actually broke through 200 pounds. I hadn't been under 200 pounds probably since probably I was a junior in college. So I was able to break 200. I broke 190. Um, and I'm like sub 180 right now. And I haven't been that since probably senior year in high school, freshman year in college. So, that, you know, so I was I was able to kind of, again, slowly whittle my way down. Um, all along eating all the crap that I really enjoy uh, and probably I probably still eat too much of it you know and I'm sure if I you know and this is one of the things I see in my patients as well is that um, we tend to kind of go overboard a lot of times on those on those evenings and so quite finding that right balance is really what's important and and those patients that you're carb backloading as well I think that a lot of those carb backloading people probably really need to be doing CNS um, or, or at least modified CNS so well, yeah, I've seen pictures of some of the stuff you sent before. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like a layer of cookie dough and then some candy bars and then like a layer of brownie batter or something and then some more candy bars and I don't remember what was on top. Cake, cake batter. Cake batter. Yeah. That's that's intense. It was, and I barely had any of it either. That's kind of funny. <laughs> I had like one little score. I'm like, I can't eat anymore. Man, <laughs> anyway, that would... It lasted in the house for like a month. I think I threw some in the freezer and took wow. some to work and... That was, you know, those kind of, but those are kind of some of the fun things you once in a while do, and you right. And you your kids helped with that, right? They had a lot of fun making that because they thought yeah. I was insane. Yeah. So. Uh, so you know, it's a good family activity of nothing else. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I probably end up not. I, I I'm sure I, I didn't eat very much of it, but I mean, again, it was just kind of the the, the notion of doing that, and uh, I think that was. I think I'm trying to remember who had someone had posted posted something like that on Facebook, so I had to up the Annie. So. <laughs> so so you're you 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 drop the weight and then I you know I know you did a second carotid artery scan. So when when was that? Yeah. So one of the things that um even before I did carb night, one of the things that I found was on low carb is my my cholesterol just really went through the roof, and um you know it was like a, I've I've had a high readings as high as a total cholesterol as high as three hundred and fifty. I've had a total LDLC cholesterol levels as high as two fifty. I've had LDL particle counts north of thirty three hundred. So I've seen some really extreme numbers, um, and so I said, "Well, I that would scare the crap out of other." Oh, it's cra- yeah. yeah. I mean, if I if any any doctor in the right mind would throw me on like you know forty milligrams of Crestor, I mean, I would be automatically on a statin like that. <clears throat> but you know, I was feeling pretty good. I'd been dropping body fat. I mean, I think I lost about ten or twelve percent body fat after I started Carb Night. 
Uh, and so I'm like, well, let's scan my carotid again. I go, you know, in my practice, I really tell patients, I don't really, I mean, the numbers are kind of important, but what's really important is disease state. So let's check the disease state. And so I did a, actually, I did a CT calcium score. So I did a CAT scan of my heart and I didn't have any calcium on that score. So I knew one of two things, either my arteries are clean in my heart or I had non-calcified plaque in my heart. And so I said, well, let's look at the CIMT because if I got plaque in my CIMT, it's probably a good chance. And that's the carotid. That's artery. the carotid. Um, carotid intima media thickness testing or CIMT. So I figured if I had still had plaque in my carotid, then maybe my CT calcium score could be a false negative. So I did my, my carotid scan and uh, lo and behold, the plaque was gone. And to my surprise, I was like, I remember, I can, I remember that it's like, like when you remember when Kennedy was shot, this is kind of what I remember exactly what I was doing when I got the report. It said that my vascular age was that of a 16 year old, which I'm like, that's not possible. And I, I called the, um, my vendor who does the, um, the skinny for me. I'm like, I, you know, cause he's been kind of, he, we've, we've been to conferences together and, you know, I'm pulling up my bacon and he's eating his oatmeal and he's laughing at me and kind of just kidding around. Um, and I said, hey, did you look at my scan? And he's like, well, no, why? I go, I go, my vascular age is a 16-year-old. And he couldn't believe it. And he's like, I'm pulling that scan. I'm having him relook at it again. And he's like, holy shit, it's, it's real. <laughs> he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> so we actually saw a reversal yeah. of disease state here, not just yeah. you know stopping it or uh, even mitigating a little bit of the damage. Yeah. I mean, this was a pretty big reversal. Yeah. And I, you know, I, there are several people that, uh, you know, you have social media these days. So, you know, and I've written a blog post about it. So I get pinged quite a bit. And, you know, one of the valid points that I think that one person has brought to my attention is that, you know, the reversals will see in the face of weight loss. So the question is, you know, you know, obviously <clears throat> that if you want to call that confounding, I suppose that could be confounding, but but weight loss and with the diet method, I think that's pretty compelling. Well, right. What what type of reversal do we usually see with weight loss? I mean, is it that, that extreme? Because your uh, the the plaque buildup that you had, basically, you said your carotid artery age prior the first time you tested in two thousand six was about ten years older than my chronologic age, which would have been what like forty. I was thirty seven, thirty six, so it was like forty seven. So that's a pretty, pretty Pretty big big drop. Yeah. So my, my curiosity is, do you get those kind of drops just with fat loss? If you say you use the starvation method that, um, you know, the government recommends. I mean, clinically I haven't seen it. Not, nothing as, as, um, as contrastable as what I've had, especially with cholesterol levels as high as. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing, you know, doing this all along with the LDL particle count north of, you know, 2,500 mostly for two years straight, basically, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's. So, but you know, that, and that's the thing. So now the question becomes is, you know, as many, many people on social media and, and talking heads talk about is, well, cholesterol doesn't matter. Uh, and I'm not sure if I necessarily still buy into that, that notion. I, I think it's much more complicated than that. But, you know, all along, um, when I was looking at my numbers um, through my time on Carbonite, um, my inflammatory markers were just like nothing. So I had really very little systemic inflammation, and um, <clears throat> I think that that inflammatory component's really important. And so I feel more comfortable if I see someone coming to me, to me and they're doing a, a ketogenic type diet or doing carb night or a low carb diet, and they got really low triglycerides and they've got good HDL and all their inflammatory markers are normal, and the only thing that's abnormal is uh, cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. Um, I, I don't necessarily say, okay, you're fine. But I think maybe I sleep a little easier. Uh, 
So, um, because clinically I, I still have a, a medical degree and I still have to kind of adhere to the standard of care. So, um, but I think that I, I, I probably am not, I don't get as excited as I probably would have maybe five years ago seeing a cholesterol level of, you know, a hundred uh, LDL of 190 and go, oh, shit, you got to go on medication. You know, <clears throat> it's, you know, I, I still not, you know, like you said, I think cholesterol, the cholesterol numbers is an incredibly complex phenomenon and we don't understand what they mean. I mean, we haven't had a clear context, I don't think, to analyze it accurately. And when you go back and you look at, well, you know, it's supposed to correlate with these things and then it turns out it doesn't at all. I just think it's a very complex process. In some people, elevated cholesterol levels on a certain type of diet probably means something really bad. Um, but you you can't generalize that across the board, unfortunately. And you can't even, you know, you can't even necessarily always correlate diet with heart disease. You know, we have examples of situations where they should be on a diet, even a ketogenic diet that shouldn't, you know, be atherogenic or what have you, but it's, it still happens. So there's, there's a lot of confounding and complex factors there. That's why, you know, assessing the disease state rather than just trying to look at these markers is a huge lesson that a lot of clinicians should kind of take from this conversation. I, I, I think. Oh, I definitely think so. And, you know, I think the thing about it is, is that it's interesting because, um, so I see this cholesterol number that's really high in myself. So then I go to, I go to the literature trying to dig up as much as I can on low carbohydrate dieting and markers of disease. And almost every study that I bring up shows improvement. You know, cholesterol gets better. HS, HSCRP, inflammatory markers get better. And I don't see, I don't see very many papers that are citing the opposite of what I've been seeing. And then certainly then all of a sudden, you know, with the, um, with the explosion of uh, bulletproof coffee and the low-carb paleo movement, um, I think we're seeing more and more of these anecdotal stories appearing on, on blogs and social media. But I don't think really anybody's really collected a good case of these and published it. And so um, and I'm starting, I, I certainly see some of these cases in my practice. Um, but I think that in, when it comes back to cholesterol, there are a lot of different factors. And I think probably one of the bigger ones would be genetic variation and your ability to metabolize cholesterol. So um, one of the things that really gets missed in, the, in, in this story um, of let's give everybody a statin is that, you know, your cholesterol is either made in your liver or you absorb it in your intestine. And those are two distinct mechanisms, and you can have defects in intestinal absorption. And there are case studies, and there are, are significant um, um, evidence in literature showing that if you have a genetic defect in, in absorption of cholesterol, regardless um, of anything else, that can that you can have plaque from that. I mean, you could plaque generating is atherogenic. So, um, you know, one of the things that I had noticed when I was um, doing all, all my advanced testing was I actually I hyperabsorb cholesterol. I don't really overproduce it. So, so the, so the question here then becomes, well, if I'm a hyper absorber, um, you know, what would be the clinical significance if I got that genetic variation? And maybe is it possible that, you know, other people who are having the similar experiences are having some type of nuanced change in their metabolism of cholesterol? So are they over, overproducing in their liver or over, uh, over absorbing in their gut? And so, um, you know, it's interesting kind of, um, hypothesis, but I haven't really seen anything again, published regarding um, low-carb dieting and cholesterol metabolism. so Right. And then the question becomes, like, what is the significance of cholesterol levels on a ketogenic or low-carb diet? Right. 
I mean, and we don't have anything on that, basically. Yeah, and, you know, certainly carrying, you know, the, the thing about it is we, if you look at people who have familial hyperlipidemia, they, they have really high particle counts and they get disease. So that makes me think then the diet does matter. You know, they, it probably has a huge factor in, in what's at play here. Uh, can you connect the dots there? So if you have a familial hyperlipidemia <laughs> right. and you're eating a standard American diet right? Okay. Now, versus, yeah. a, versus a low-carb ketogenic diet. Okay, that was the missing component The, the there. question here becomes, is that, familial, is, it, is that FH or familial hyperlipidemia going to be as dangerous and as disease-promoting? You know, right, the, if the, you're on a ketogenic yeah, diet instead. That would be the true question and, and to see. And again, this is all kind of thinking out, you know, thinking out loud, but uh, I, just, I kind of liken it to that because we know in... in, in populations that have FH, they're at high risk for having disease and, and disease at an early age. Mm-hmm. And predominantly because they're, you know, they're having cholesterol levels really high from, you know, from birth basically or from, right, from day, top, yeah. from day one. So they got an additional 20 years of, of plaque accumulation. So they, the, the flip side of that would be is if I'm, if I start a ketogenic diet now, or I, I, I start a diet that promotes the LDL particle number, am I just, am I just haven't had an exposed to that particle number for a long enough time to create the disease state. But, but again, like I said, demonstrating reversal over a two-year process, uh, I'm, I'm hedging my bet on that I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think that's, you know, what I, I, what I don't understand is like how you can even, uh, at least the story of cholesterol and cholesterol levels and how that correlates with everything, I mean, it's based on a flawed premise to begin with. It's based on flawed data. And then, you know, even on with Americans, other than very specific situations like the familial hyperlipidemia, you know, it's almost a useless number in a lot of ways, I think. You know, triglyceride levels are more reliable. Hell, your waist circumference is more reliable than cholesterol levels in in, uh, predicting mortality rate. Yeah, I'd probably say with a caveat that is that if your cholesterol, if your LDL is elevated and you have those additional markers, right, then I think it means something significantly different than if you don't. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of if it's in addition to these other more correlated effects, then you're, you're probably looking at some perfect storm of sickness coming up. Yeah. I mean, and again, we're, you know, again, it always comes back to looking at disease risk. Um, which is, you know, when we look at, you know, heart disease risk, um, we don't necessarily in the general medical community look at disease process as opposed to disease risk, which we do in all other disease states, you know. So as a, the, 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 the analogy I always bring about is, like, you know, if you have a tumor uh, or you have a risk for cancer, I'm not going to give you a chemotherapy because uh, you have risk for, you know, for the said tumor. Uh, I'm going to probably look for a mass, biopsy it, get a diagnosis, and then give you treatment if you have the diagnosis. I wouldn't just blindly give you something because you have risk, yet that's what we're kind of doing with the heart disease paradigm. We're, we're giving people treatment based on risk. Ah, that's a very significant difference. <laughs> well, and that's, again, why it comes back to you need to look at the disease state. Yeah. You need to look, like, are they even in a diseased state? Correct. And then how do you treat it from that point on? And, you know, and the way we do, it, at least in my practice, is we look at other markers and then we'll do imaging. And so, you know, honestly, unfortunately, a lot of the imaging that um, is required, um, a majority of it's not really covered by insurance. So that's one of the issues. But honestly, for probably about $200, um, you can get enough imaging to have a good idea where you sit. 
And so, um, you know, a combination of a carotid ultrasound and a CT calcium score, at least here in, in, in suburban Phoenix, I can get that done for about 200 bucks. And that's, I mean, that's not a very big cost. Not usually. In, yeah, in, 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 in most imaging places, even if you can't afford that 200 bucks, they'll do like a payment plan. So you put like 25 bucks down a month for four months, you know? Right. And, you know, the hard part though is, and I know you, you talk about this in your clinic all the time, you know, their first question is, does my insurance cover it? And if not, they just, yeah. they don't do it. What's that entitlement? Because I'm paying, you know, premiums are not cheap these days. I mean, patients are paying upwards of a thousand dollars a month for a family. So, and on top of that, they have a deductible. So, you know, it's like, you know, what the notion of, oh, you got to come out of pocket on something that's like, you know, what am I, you talking crazy talk? I'm already paying all this money. I should get it. It should be included. I'm like, well, it's not, sorry. And again, you know, we, we've had this conversation before and, you know, my rant on insurance, you know, like health insurance can't, you can't support the current system with this idea of insurance. It doesn't work because insurance works because people, everybody can pay a small amount to help someone out when there's a big tragic event. You know, it's like farmers back in the day, you know, they had farmer's insurance, which if your crop for some reason, whatever, like there was a fire, you lost your crop, but everything else, everybody else in the area was fine. The, that small amount of money from everybody went to help cover your one large disaster. Well, that works on the premise that not every farmer is going to lose their crop every year. But that's what we're seeing now with health insurance. Like every 90% of the U.S. population is going to get sick and they're going to get very sick and it's going to be costly treatment. Well, who the other 10% needs to make up the, the rest of that? That's just not possible. You know, we, we really just have to look at it as, okay, we're going to get sick uh, for whatever reason. You know, the, the U.S. government has set up this great framework to make us extremely sick. And if we want to follow that, we're going to have to pay for it. We can't rely on, you know, your neighbor to pay their share and to pay your share. It's just not going to work because your neighbor is going to be sick too. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, the system is is set up in such a way, I, you know, I actually analogize it to like nutrition science, right? Nutrition science was based off of flawed premises and, and, and poorly interpreted studies. And then they just got stacked on top of each other as time went on. And, and this notion of health insurance, I think, is in the same way. We, we started with a concept back in the 50s and 60s, and it's kind of got layered on top of that in terms of what we would expect because, you know, a lot of that was buffered from corporate corporations. Right. And now corporations are like, well, we're not going to pay for your fat ass. So, yeah, <laughs> right. So now consumers are seeing it. And that cost shifts, you know, all that cost shifting started probably in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, you know, back in the day, it would have worked fine if everybody was – on a diet that made them healthy and had a healthy lifestyle, you know, insurance is great. Somebody breaks their leg, which is kind of catastrophic, then, you know, that can be covered with no problem or somebody gets cancer, but you know, it just doesn't work when everybody is sick all the time. Yeah. And you know, just one of the things I see every day in the office, you know, so you can obviously feel good on the outside, but you can obviously, things can be haywire in the inside. And at least my perspective is, is that, 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 dysregulation, that, that metabolic issues that you see, um, we can catch, we can see it coming uh, 20, 25 years before, you know, things come off the rails. And, you know, the question here becomes is are those patients that have those markers, how many of them would progress? Well, we don't have good data on that. But if we see those markers and, and we notice 
your maybe body mass index to 27 or 30, uh, and you've got other things going on, you're having injuries in your ankles and your knees hurting you, and you're having all these other things going on, why not take some of these markers and address some of the issues that are probably going to deal with 15 or 20 years down the road? Right. Why wait till it's full blown? Yeah. And super costly. And super costly. So let's, since, you know, we've, we're in that direction anyway, like, you know, you've told me, I've, I've heard you love reporting a, of course, you're just incredibly sick people who come in and some of the amazing (laughs) levels of (laughs) physical devastation that these people have internally. Um, But you've also shared a lot of stories about patients who came in with you know, completely deranged blood markers and, you know, in six weeks to eight weeks, uh, there's been big reversals. So why don't you like, you know, a, give us maybe some of those success stories. Obviously you can't tell us their names, but give us some of those success stories. And then, and then we'll kind of go into how you introduce people into these diets. You know, I think, uh, what did Nina on our previous conversation said, you know, do you have an on-ramp (laughs) program and kind of you do. So let's go into that. Well, you know, one of the things that, um, I I started, I I work with several cardiology groups here locally. And, um, so as, as patients, um, were coming to me and I was referring them out for testing that I was doing and they were noticing that they were dropping weight. Um, one of the local nurse practitioners was like, what are you doing? I mean, I saw this guy back and he dropped like 20 pounds. I go, I'm letting him eat bacon three times a day, and her head exploded. And you're like, <laughs> right. get out of here. I'm like, well, kind of. <laughs> I go, it's the, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of affectionately known as a diet, the, the bacon doctor diet to some people. But um, because of the results that we're getting and the markers in the, in the blood work, she's been sending me kind of her, her uh, some of her train wrecks, and then some patients who are really kind of motivated to, to get better and healthier. So I think um, when I'm looking for candidates for like carb night, I'm looking for people who are really engaged and want to do something different. And a lot of times they're frustrated because of what they're trying to do. So one of the patients I've, I've had, I, I actually saw her first time in, in January and she has not ever had any type of intervention, um, but been seeing the cardiologist for about three or four years. And her numbers were just, I mean, I think her LDL particle count was like 1900, which is like the 90th percentile, 85th percentile. Um, the triglycerides were above 250. Good cholesterol was below 40. She had some markers of inflammation, definitely markers of glucose intolerance. And um, so I put her on carbonite. She was um, her, uh, she was already doing uh, not necessarily low carb, but was um, trying to cut back on carbohydrates. And so I basically gave her the on-ramp program, which is basically I, I start with, depending on what I think they can do, it'll be sub 100 grams a day. So that sub 100 just depends. And so for her, I think we did like 75 grams. I said, shoot for 75 grams of carbs a day. I go, don't count calories until I see an X. Just count carbohydrates because I really didn't want her to be hungry. And so she came back uh, 10 days later, two weeks later, and had dropped about seven pounds. And she felt, I mean, the thing that she really, she didn't really care about the weight. She said she felt better. She had more energy. Um, she just didn't feel sluggish. Um, and so, and her husband had vicariously lost, I think five pounds because she, he was kind of doing the same diet because she was doing it. So, um, what we did was, and I'm like, looked in her food log and I'm like, well, you know, you only hit 20 carbs this day and you only hit 15 this day. And then you hit 50 this other day. I go, you're not really hitting 75 very often. I go, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. I go, well, what do you think about doing third less than 30 every day? 
And then, and she's like, well, why do you, well, that kind of, that doesn't seem very fun. I go, well, the fun part is that you can, you know, you could do carb night. What's that? And I go, well, so I explained the carb <laughs> night program and she was, you know what? That would be amazing because we play, we play cards with friends every, every weekend. And so that could be the time where I can, you know, not have to worry about what I eat and we can bring stuff and do potluck and, and have a good time. He said that would actually work out really well. So after that first consult, we put her, I put her on carb night and her husband's doing it now too. And, and he's lost about, I think 20 pounds. She lost about over the next, over the 90 day period of time when I followed her, she had lost about 25, 27 pounds. Um, but the, the amazing thing was, so on our, on our, some of our advanced blood panels, they come back like with a traffic light system. So they're like red, yellow, and green. So green's a good marker. Yellow's intermediate risk and red's really, you know, you're going to die. So, <laughs> so um, we repeated her lab work and she was like on a blood pressure medicine. She was on a statin. So despite being on the statin drug, her LDL particle count wasn't at goal um, and her triglycerides were really high. And so when I repeated her panel, um, every single marker on her front page was green. I mean, it was like you just the contrast of looking at the previous one and the, and the, and the new one was just like my jaw dropped. I'm like. Holy crap. From a total stop to go. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, well, that's, that's, that's what we see in the literature when people go low carb, you know, their cholesterols yeah. get better. And, you know, and the amazing thing was I didn't change any of your medicines and her LDL particle drop, her LDL particle number dropped about a thousand points. And so, um, you know, she, and she took her last back. She had to have follow up with the cardiologist and, and, um, the cardiologist cut, I think her statin dose by 50%. I mean, so she's on a really minuscule dose, but. Um, I'm kind of hoping that we'll be able to get her off of that in the next probably 90 days. So hopefully we'll get her off, you know, the cluster medicine and she'll continue doing well and losing weight. I mean, yeah. And this is half a year, 90 basically. days. Well, no, no, no I'm yeah. saying if you go another 90 yeah. days, yeah, another, yeah. yeah, six months, hopefully get her off right. her medication. So that would be one ep- That's one, one, uh, one story. I got another story. I got lots of stories, but I've got another gentleman, um, who is a uh, retired police officer and he's working, um, I think security or something like that. And so he came to me and I've been trying to, he's a big CrossFitter. He loves CrossFit. So <laughs> your favorite client. So, keeper. Yeah. <laughs> first, first problem right there. So, um, I've been, you know, he's had a, a weight issue and metabolic issue for many years, probably four or five years over. I've been seeing him and I've not been able to convince him to do low carb. And he, I think was pushing maximum density since I've been seeing him. And I think he was like five, six, five, seven, like two forty, two fifty. Um, he had a pretty decent amount of muscle on him though too, but I mean, he was, he's pretty, pretty big and a lot of padding. Around yeah. Him. He just felt like crap though. He just felt horrible. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm crossfitting five days a week oh, and geez. I really love it. And, but it's just not working for me. I'm not losing any weight. <laughs> so, so I go, and he was, again, it's gotta be the right patients. He was really, I mean, the, these patients really want to make a significant change or frustrated. They've been doing what they think they should be doing. And so I'm like, okay, if you listen to what I say and do exactly what I say, I promise you I will have seven to 10 pounds off you in the next three weeks. Because I'll do whatever I say. Do, do tell me what I need to do. I go, number one, don't go to CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I say. Just at least, because what? I can't CrossFit? I go, give me two weeks. I want you just to stop CrossFitting for two weeks. And I said, the second thing we did was we put him on carb night. So he was ready to make that, 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 that leap. So we put him on carb night. I had him stop crossfitting, came back two weeks later, and, and to a T, he was down like eight pounds. 
Um, he wasn't retaining fluid. He felt, I mean, again, it's really the, I feel much better is the repetitive story I hear over and over again. I just, I, or I didn't, I didn't realize how bad I felt before. Right. Um, you know, my energy is better. Um, but he, you know, he came back. I'm like, see, I told you you needed to stop CrossFitting. <laughs> He's like, well, it, first question out of his mouth when he came back in the fall was, well, when can I go back to CrossFit? Right. <laughs> I said, well, let's play it like this. I go, you know, I don't want to take away something you enjoy. You enjoy CrossFitting. So let's, let's do CrossFit two days a week and you can do it on the day after carb night and the second day after carb night. And then after that, just, you know, do some walking or some something else that's not going to be CrossFit-esque. And he was able to, you know, deal with that for another month and came back. And I think he had lost another five pounds and lost a couple belt belt, belt loop rungs on, on his belt and um, was feeling really good. And I think the last time I saw him, he was back to CrossFitting like four days a week again. But. <laughs> <laughs> Did his weight stay down at least? Yeah, yeah. His, he's been able to keep his weight off and he's, he's doing a lot better. Is he still sticking to the diet? He is. I think, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about low-carbohydrate diet or, or you know, strategically used carbohydrates like carbonate and stress management. I think you, you take such a big stress load off the body that you can handle some of those things better. Uh, it, it's still not ideal, but yeah. at least your body has a greater capacity to deal with that stress level that you're introducing. Yeah. And I think it might be that chronic stress that they're engaging in before they change the diet too. So, you know, you get these people, you know, for, for example, this guy who's doing CrossFit all the time, or you get your, um, Patients who are doing this tons of cardio and tons of insanity and mm-hmm. tons of P90X. And I tell them, it, again, I tell them, I don't want you to do any exercise for a week or two. And that's such a foreign concept. I'm like, I go, just focus on the diet. I go, it's hard enough trying to get the diet done because they haven't really done low carb before. I go, just focus on that and don't worry about that other stuff. I go, we'll get there in, in due time. But you know, work on the diet first and, and get that mastered because if you've never done low carb before, it's going to be hard. And even if you've done low carb, you still fuck it up all the time anyways. Right. <laughs> well, not intentionally, but I mean, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, I always, you know, that, that subset of patients I see that are doing, they're coming to me or doing these diets. And then I said, well, well, tell me about your week. And I'm like, well, that's not carb night. <laughs> right. So, um, so those are the issues that, you know, sometimes come up and, and then certainly, um, again, I think it's gotta be the right patient who's ready to make that change because certainly the last thing you want to do is someone who has a real inability to control their carbohydrate intake. That's probably like the last person I might actually say, okay, let's put you on carb night because what will happen is they'll, they'll do the reorientation. They'll have their first carb night and then they're on carb week, you know, afterwards. So you have to make sure you can kind of identify that patient who's maybe had a little bit of issue with food. If you want to call it food addiction, I don't know if I really like that term, but they have a a poor relationship with food. Um, I think there is certainly a neurochemical issue going on. And and so those are patients I tend to be a little bit more conservative with. Um, But the on-ramp would be um, reduction in carbohydrate during during the day. And obviously we use MyFitnessPal, but you could use Lose It or Calorie King, whatever app you want to use. Um, we start having them counter carbohydrates initially. That's the on ramp, and then the second part of the on ramp would be back ending their calories, so backloading carbs at the end of the day. So if I want to have them on a carb restricted diet, I make sure that they try to keep breakfast and lunch as low or carbohydrate free as possible. And then um, if they do that, and I'm giving them like 80 grams of carbs a day, um, that's a pretty decent dinner. I mean, that's yeah. something they can really enjoy. So I mean. So that's something that would be the other um, way of kind of introducing the the plan that and, way. And most people don't mind like bacon and eggs for breakfast if they have time or right. heavy cream in their coffee. Right. 
you yeah. know, for most people, that's it's not that hard to give up their morning pastry or whatever. It yeah, is. but I mean, like like giving up bread, giving up their flavored creamer. It's like you're taking their firstborn. It's <laughs> right. like crazy. What I can't have my Irish cream flavoring. I mean, it's like I'm you're like, better off just having Irish cream in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, just go for the straight stuff. Why mess around with it? So that's that's ironic. I find that you know we talk about always bread being that that firstborn, but God, some of those creamers are like, oh, I gotta have my creamer. I'm like, okay, it's you know, so, I don't have to tell you, man. <laughs> that's cr- that. I mean, it's those little things too yeah. that I just i I would never think about. And you know, that first, the very very first test group, you know, however many years ago that was. Now, I mean, they they would ask about and talk about things that I would just never consider in a hundred years. And it, it's it's partly because of the relationship I've had with food for so long. It's just, it's a means to an end. So right. there wasn't all those little things like, oh, I have to have my creamer. Or even to this day, like I don't, I don't have those kind of attachments where like, oh, I could never eat that again. I, you know, it wouldn't, I don't, maybe beef. I would be pissed <laughs> off if I found out that I couldn't eat beef or bacon ever again. Those, those would probably bother me pretty substantially, but you know, all kinds of little stuff is like, no, you can never eat brownies again, or no, you can never have like these singular items. I, I wouldn't think twice. I wouldn't care. It'd be like, well, there's so many other things. And then if you just get them to do the heavy cream instead of their stupid flavored creamers. Right. Well, I think uh, one of the things I've really found, uh, at least um, if you need to get patients off of that stuff is that, you know, you can get a sugar-free flavoring and it's pretty darn good with the heavy cream. In yeah. It, so. So basically what your approach to getting some of your patients on a, you, you try to assess if they're ready, if they're making that commitment or if they've been on other diets. So essentially you kind of use carb night as like the rebound boyfriend or rebound girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, basically. Uh, I mean, again, and I will peg patients who don't come to me. Like I saw a patient this week. Um, he's diabetic. Uh, he had just uh, had a, a hospitalization for a medical condition and you know he needs to lose weight he's probably got sleep apnea he's got hypertension diabetes and so that's a patient that didn't come to me asking for things he's kind of came in for his routine lab work and i'm like you know we got to get some weight off you and I, you know, t- I gave him the spiel here's my fitness pal no car breakfast no car lunch have some carbs at dinner and you know kind of went over his head and in and out in one year out the other and so that's kind of i'll get that reaction sometimes and you you know, I just kind of plant the seed and let them kind of go on their merry way. And hopefully they'll recognize that they'll need to make a change somewhere along the lines. And maybe it might not be this visit or the next visit or even the third visit, but maybe that fourth visit, they'll come back and say, you know what, I've been thinking about what you said. And, you know, I started not eating bread and I lost like five pounds. And, you know, so we'll sometimes see that kind of effect as well. But it does have to be the appropriate patient, I think. They got to be ready to do the do any change. You know, whenever you, change is like the hardest thing you can do. So if they're right. you got to find that patient who's made that decision, they're ready to go. What's interesting, and you know, I've heard this. I don't know how many times, especially with people who use carb night for weight loss, uh, and, and even though it wasn't part of their goal, is that you know that key effector right there. It's like I didn't, and it's not always they feel good. You know, they they do say they feel good, but the thing that surprises them is they didn't realize how bad they felt because it had been so long since they had felt good. You know, they just, it totally blows their mind that they felt that bad and just didn't realize it. Yeah, so I get that. I get that over and over yeah. again. It's, it's, it's crazy. And then they're like, you know, I feel, I just feel, it, it, they it's not really guilt that they feel, but they just feel like, 
I wish I would have known about this before. You know, I wish, why didn't somebody tell me about this? Right. I would have done it earlier. That's yeah. You know, that's such a common response. It's like if somebody could have told me that I could feel this good, I would have done this years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it, so it, you know, it's kind of that thing of like, if you can find the hook yeah, and just get them to do it for a little while, you know, it's almost everything. Like you feel so much better physically. You feel better. Your digestion feels better. Mentally, you feel better. You feel clear. You've got more energy. Yeah. If you can just get somebody to experience that in those first, you know, it takes longer than 10 days usually for most people because they go yeah. through that miserable cycle, but right. if you can get them over that hump. I mean, I... I was worried at first with Carbonite because so many people were like, I just, I'm going to do this forever. This, I want to do this for my lifestyle. And at the time there was no way that I could make a confident recommendation that that was okay to do. You know, I just, I didn't know, but now I'm like, well, yeah, yeah this is probably how you should eat the rest of your life. Yeah. And to this day, patients come to me doing Carbonite and says, okay, so I read the book. So I, what do I do after six months? I, I, I get that a lot actually. So I'm like, yeah. uh, I go, oh, don't worry about it. I've been on it for three years. You're good to go. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's more than enough. A, I think there's actually good scientific data now to say you could do this indefinitely. And there's an amazing amount of empirical data. I'm, I'm glad this has been around for so long or, you know, I've got a friend who's basically been doing Carbonite for Gosh, since I published the book. Wow, it's almost 10 years. Yeah, and he just, he does it because he loves it and, mm. you know, it makes him feel good. He's been able to maintain, I think, like his wedding weight. He wow. was, yeah, he's been able, from his first marriage even, you know, so yeah. he's been able to maintain his wedding weight now for a long time. And he, at one point in his life, he was about 80 pounds overweight mm -hmm. and he struggled to get that off. And he still wasn't at his ideal weight, or at least what he had in his mind is his ideal weight. Now yeah. it's it's really easy for him, and he does still every once in a while, you know, have those nights out that aren't the planned carb night or aren't in line with things, or a lunch, you know, for a special occasion, or even not so special. But he's been on it so long, those deviations have no yeah. effect. I mean, I can tell you personally, like um, Memorial Day weekend, it was a carb weekend for me. I, I mean, I just, you know, I backended him. I always had him in the evening, but I it, I, it didn't really follow follow along and then I think it took me I'm I'm back today I was back underneath my pre that carb weekend weight I mean so it took me what 10 days 14 days to get back where I was I mean yeah so. which if you think about it, it's not a long period of time no. compared to like you know nine months yeah or, how do you speaking of that how do you talk to your patients about that I know there's this there's always a sense of immediacy when people go on a diet like they want these results right away and you know, what they, what they fail to recognize is it might've taken them 10, 20, 30 years yeah. to get to this place. And they want results in six months because they watched Jillian Michael starve someone to death. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you address that? Or do you even run into that very often? Um, I, I actually will set that expectation initially. I, I tell them exactly that. I say, you know what? Your weight didn't come on in six months. It's not going to come off in six months. And I think most patients are willing to accept that even though they want it to come off faster. Um, you know, certainly, um, it's a, probably a different situation if someone's got an event or something like that. We can we can try to be a little bit more aggressive, but you know, in terms of that expectation, I tell them, look, you're probably going to lose anywhere between two to seven pounds in the first week. It's going to be water weight, and then after that, you can probably count on maybe a half to two pounds a week, um, and that's your expectation, and that's kind of what I set it at. And so when they come in and they you know, so it's, I always get a mixed bag. So some people will look at their, let's say they lose four pounds in the four weeks and they're like, oh my God, I lost four pounds. That's awesome. 
And then I'll get the same. I get another patient says, I only lost four pounds. And right. I'm like, so, so it's a really a mixed bag, but I always kind of set that expectation up and, and, and we always talk about that. We say, look, it, it's not going to come off right away. It didn't come on right away. And yes, I understand that you can probably pack on four or five pounds pretty quickly, but you know, it's, that's how lot that's life. I mean, I, right. I, I, that's the way it is. And so, uh, I think that, uh, if they can at least keep focus and we can show at least that they're, the scale's moving or, um, you know, their clothes are fitting better or they're feeling better, and then we can look at some blood markers, and those are going in the, in the positive direction. Those are the positive feedbacks I try to really emphasize in the office visits and tell them, look, you know, uh, you know, or I can tell them, you know, what was your last carb night? Oh, well, you know, it was a little bit off the hook. I, you know, went to, you know, I went to the pizza place, and we had ice cream, and then we went and had a banana split, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, and you didn't gain any weight. <laughs> right. That's the thing people often <laughs> miss. So I'm always quick to point that out as well. And then obviously the other issue that we always deal with is the frustration of scale watching as well. So, so a lot of times we'll always focus on, on those other parameters because, you know, not many of my patients are going for body fat analysis. So, so we do that as well. That's, and I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what else we haven't covered. Do you have any other, you know, part of this is, you know, clinical application of these things in, you know, often, like if you go to most of the talking heads out there that are, you know, quote unquote health experts and have health blogs and are tweeting and everything, they're not really taking a serious look at their diet. They're not taking a serious look at their recommendation. It's usually an N equals one. I found this worked for me. Now everybody should listen to me and do what I say, uh, which, you know, to me obviously is an insult to everybody who does do real work. And that, that was one of the reasons I, I wanted to work with you when you started bugging the shit out of me, trying to get me to answer questions for you. I don't know if I really bugged the shit out of you. Come on. Well, you, you sent an email. That's bugging the shit out I of sent, me. I sent one email. <laughs> no, I think, I think you might have tried to get in touch with me a couple times. Yeah. Well, and, I, uh, I requested to be a client on your website. Ah, uh, is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. You, you had that, I think, that dead end where if you wanted to be a client <laughs> and then you sent the email and it went somewhere in Zimbabwe or something I like know. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've still got a lot of those things kind of set up that way. Um, no, actually, we have a person a person who looks at all those now, at least. I'm a little more responsible with those. But, um, you know, the where I was going here is you know, mo- most people will never get to the point that they even care if their diet makes a difference other than it made them popular or whatever. Um, but you know, like myself and then obviously through you, like I really do care that these plans do make a big difference in people's lives and their health. And, you know, more importantly that it spreads because of it. So, you know, as a clinician, you know, you, in your practice, you found all these methods, like what, what recommendations you would make? I, you know, obviously you don't need to tell all the blood work and all the parameters that you use and everything on the podcast, but you know, what is it that you would tell other clinicians who might possibly hear this podcast? Like how could they get started in using these programs? And th- this is not a shameless plug. Uh, you know, I don't expect you to be like, Oh, we'll go buy a carb night. That's, you know, more, obviously that's the information portal, but what would you tell them about like how to address their patients or how to bring this into their practice and kind of make it a part of their practice and not just something they recommend off the cuff? Yeah, I think that, well, I'm going to kind of go around at the back door here. I, you know, as a patient, you know, like personally, even I was in denial 
But what really bugs the crap out of me is that clinicians are in denial as well to a certain degree. And I'm not saying all clinicians are bad. There's certainly good doctors. There's bad doctors. But, you know, in my experience, there's this kind of apathy uh, that, uh, that, you know, I'm here, I'm going to write your drug and away you go. And part of that's set up because of the system. But I, I think that clinicians have to figure something out. They've got to have some type of realization when they're seeing patient after patient after patient and they're gaining weight and they're not losing weight and they're getting a stent and a second stent and a third stent. You know, these things should not be happening. And so there's got to be a light bulb on there somewhere among clinicians to figure out that, hey, this should not be happening. And then, then obviously the next question is, if this is happening, what do I do to stop it from happening or reverse it from, ha- you know, reverse the, the process? And so... I think that you have to have an open mind and you have to do some, you have to do some knowledge base. You have to expand your knowledge base. I mean, that's what the problem is. And we're, we're not really taught a lot of nutrition in, in medical school. Um, we're kind of feeding the low fat mantra. And so I think you have to have, as, as, as we, as clinicians do sometimes read to get CME or credits for their upkeeping of their education, um, they have to kind of go out there and seek some of the stuff that's out there. And, and maybe reading a popular book like Nina's book, it might be going back to the literature and doing literature literature searches. Although as a clinician, we often, a, lot, a lot of times don't have the time. Or it would be seeking out another clinician in your area that's doing this to say, okay, what's working for you? And then what's working for me? And then kind of brainstorming that way. But I think that's the, the, the onus is going to be on the clinician to figure out what's going on. Now, you know, in my practice, I, I've certainly uh, been exposed to um, education uh, programs, my own reading, uh, my own reading of the literature, which has kind of fueled my knowledge. And and now when I see lab work, I'm qu- acutely sensitive to, to common markers that most doctors don't think 20 seconds about. So I think that's 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 the hard part. And I don't know how you do that on a large scale basis. And so um, I, I think simply look at markers of metabolic dysfunction is the easiest thing to do. And you have a lot of those things in your panel. Probably the easiest thing to do is that total cholesterol panel that most patients will will get from their provider and looking at triglyceride to HDL ratio. I mean, that's the cheapest thing you have. It's always on every single physical panel you get. And, you know, if that ratio is above three and a half, you know, you're in trouble. So look at that marker. And, and, you know, we know that low carbohydrate dieting is a great vehicle for lowering triglyceride and improving HDL. I mean, uh, and and that's where I'd probably start with. Well, and inflammation markers and... Well, the problem pressure. Yeah. I mean, but I'm just saying for a simple kind of, okay, where do you start? That's probably where I'd start because if you do that, but then if you do that, then markers of inflammation will go down. Your blood pressure will improve. I mean, all those things go downhill. Right. You know, so, uh, and I think they have to have like a test case. So they have some success. I mean, a lot of this is being done out of the box and there can be some um, uncomfortableness about it because, you know, again, it's kind of going against the standard of care, so to speak. Um, but you know, what you're doing is not really making much of a difference anyways. Right. So it's kind of, you know, if, if somebody wanted to bring this into their practice, the idea would probably be just find one candidate who's pretty deranged, probably on a decent amount of medication and just see what, if they're game, if they're game, why not? You can't be, you can't be harming them. They're already, you know, circling the drain anyway, so to speak. Right. So, yeah. and, and basically it's the same thing as for the patient, you know, the patient gets to the point where like, wow, I didn't realize how sick I was. Yeah. And the, the doctor can also then be at the point. It's like, wow, I didn't realize how effective yeah. these programs could be. I mean, the other aspect is the way I came about it was, you know, 
I wasn't the healthiest physician, and I can guarantee you a lot of physicians are probably not very healthy either. And so if you have, if you do your own lab work and you see your markers, do it on yourself. Right. You know? Be your, be the first N equals one. Yeah. In your clinic. <laughs> so, I mean, that's probably the other thing I would look at. And, and so, again, uh, be confident in what you're doing. And ha- you have to be able to co- be confident in what you're recommending because if you go kind of, if you do it like half-assed, I mean, patients are excellent bullshit detectors. And so... Yeah, they'll they'll talk, they'll just they won't listen to you. So so here's a question that you, I I actually have never really heard asked, because I think the impression is always the opposite. What can you think of anything directly about medical school that you experienced or were taught or the impression you were given that actually crippled your ability to help people appropriately? The answer might be nothing, but I just, I, I wouldn't believe you if you said that. <laughs> I'd say you're full of shit. Um, I think that medical school, it's really a difficult question. There could be multiple things, but I can't really think of one specific thing. I think about medical school as just, it's a foundation and it gives you a foundation to then expand your knowledge base. And I think that sometimes in that process of getting that foundation down, you kind of not see the forest from the trees and in that clinical experience you're supposed to get through medical school and through residency. Um, again, it's kind of still working on that foundation. And I think it's the, you know, you have to, we had a, we had a, I went to Wayne state medical school in, in, in Detroit. And so we had three medical schools in Michigan we had Michigan state medical school, the university of Michigan, which was the big academic center. And then we had Wayne state and the running joke was um, you can go to um, University, University, Michigan, University of Michigan medical student graduates um, could probably diagnose a disease and really name it esoterically and define what's going on, um, but they wouldn't be able to provide the treatment. Um, the Wayne State student would be able to not necessarily define the treatment, but they could treat the patient, and then the Michigan State patient, uh, student wouldn't be able to do either. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was a running joke. Um, but that, that application of being able to provide treatment to a patient um, it's taken me quite a bit of time to kind of feel confident in my clinical experience. And that I think was, it, it's, I, I don't know how you would resolve that in medical school, but that's kind of the missing piece for me, at least. It, it, you know, what I'm doing now, it has nothing to do with what I learned in medical school. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, certainly the foundational science behind it helps me understand what I'm doing now. But, you know, compared to how I was practicing medicine when I came out of the residency and what I'm doing now, it's like, you know, it's two different worlds. So it's kind of that idea. You've got to take medical school is not an end all be all in itself. Yeah. It is the starting point. It is really the starting point. And I think I've, you know, a couple other people I know who went through med school who are personal friends. I really had the impression from them, especially when they got out of, out of, you know, just the academic part, like they really acted like you could not argue with them about the human body because they absolutely knew everything about it. Plus ego. <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of test cases. Yeah. I only had a couple of those and it, it but, was just interesting because they'd yeah. have discussions about other things, but yeah. they would not have discussions about the body. Like they just yeah. knew. No, I think that, you know, part of that's psychology, what it takes to get to medical school and a type of person that weeds into a program like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, ego has a lot to do with that. And that probably gets bred through medical school as well to a certain degree. I mean, not mm-hmm. saying everybody's like that, but you know, we all come across, I come across a lot of people who just, you know, you can't argue with them. Right. I mean, right. it's the way it is, but, um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's a jumping off point. I, I, I think about like my first year after residency and how I, tra- I taught diabetics and 
I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that's what I did. You know, <laughs> right. you know I was giving them the 1800 calorie diet and, you know, have your portion of carbohydrate and protein and don't eat any fat. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so basically right now, what you're trying to do is cleanse yourself of all the sins <laughs> of yesteryear when you were actually making these people worse. Without oh, knowing it. I don't know if I made them necessarily worse, but... I, See, I would argue that you would, because if you put somebody on an 1,800-calorie diet, still carb-based, yeah. they're not going to do very well on it, and they're probably going to rebound and become sicker than they were. Probably, but I gave them lots of meds. So, oh, know. okay. Well, there I, you go. I, I, I do my job and write the prescription. As long as you gave them a couple Pez dispensers of meds, then everything's good. You know, everything's right with the world. I, I think I've already feel cleansed, actually, to be honest with you. So, Well, yeah, I, yeah. you know, just over the last few years, yeah. this, you know, since I've known you, it sounds like you've done some amazing stuff and working with first responders, even though I know that's a very challenging population. Um, it is because beer is like a food group, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and on top of it, the, the, their level of preparedness for the actual events that they yeah. might, might have to experience is totally off base. Yeah. We did an education um, piece the other night and, um, you know, it's really difficult because the problem with a lot of the first responders is they've got metabolic derangement yet. I have to treat them as an endurance athlete or a performance athlete. Right. And it's just, um, it makes it very complicated. So, uh, yeah. so again, we kind of give them that kind of, I can't really put them on carb night, but they're not really candidates for carb backloading. So we kind of give them that middle road, kind of, uh, push them into the, the shallow end with kind of just backloading carbs on certain days and kind of taking that approach. Yeah. And then you have the problem of compliance. I know there was yeah. way, way too often did I get reports back, you know, <laughs> it was almost all protein, no fat. And yeah. then they were like passing out. Yeah. It was funny. The funniest thing that came up the other day was uh, we talked about eating green vegetables and they're like, well, my rolling rock bottle's green, right? Jeez. <laughs> oh, Jeez. <laughs> so it's every population has its own unique challenges, <laughs> it seems like. So, but yeah, it's been, you know, I think the thing that I really like about it, it's very rewarding. You know, I'm not, I, I really truly, my, my, and kind of like you, you're, you're you were truly out there just to, I hate, it's so cheesy, but you just want to help people. I mean, and you know, I remember when I was interviewing for medical school, the the last thing you want to say in your interview is that you want to go into medical school because you want to help people. But honestly, that's kind of, I mean, that is part of kind of what we do. We want to try to assist people in, you know, getting better. So, yeah. And I think, you know, what's oddly enough, you know, when, when my focus really in my life changed from helping people to making money, like I used to be very focused on, you know, I like doing software, but I was doing it at the level I was doing because I wanted to make a lot of money. And now that I've made that shift of just trying to help people, legitimately just trying to find ways to help people and make it more widespread, like I'm doing much better now than I ever did. And, you know, I actually am able to make other people's lives better monetarily because I can hire people now to do things. And, you know, all I do now is see that income that I make as a sign that yes, I'm I'm actually making a dent now, uh, and and the, that number really means nothing else to me anymore. Then yeah, if it goes up, that means I've reached more people, and if it goes down, then I need to bust my ass to start screaming louder. Well, let me ask you one thing: if you look at like carb night or even carb backloading, what is the biggest mistake you see people doing? Is there a one single thing you can think of or point out? <sighs> I, I I'll tell you that not doing it the way it's. In, I mean, as simple as not doing the way it's supposed to be done. Right. I, I, mean, I think there's a lot of times patients will be, or at least patients I see will think too much about it. Yeah. Uh, overthinking I, it. But I mean, is there anything specifically that you see? I mean, 
that's, I mean, that's really the biggest problem uh, is overthinking it and like really just overthinking it and trying to carry one of the worst things uh, that's challenging, especially since, you know, it's a book that's out there to a lot of people who may not actually be that familiar with me is that, you know, they still have that old world mentality that they try to bring into it. And like we talked about with the firefighters, like fat is still difficult for them. Animal fats are even more difficult for them. You know, it makes it very hard. And then, you know, they feel like crap. You know, they're kind of in that middle land and then their carb nights are so devastating. You know, they cause such radical reactions because they haven't had enough calories because they didn't get enough fat. They've been all protein and then they get this sugar rush. Uh, you know, it's it's never a good time for anybody. So that's the biggest mistake with carb night. The biggest mistake with carb backloading, uh, you know, I'd say it's it's basically the same or actually not not assessing what their true level of athleticism or muscle mass is. You know, there's people out there who, you know, they're like 160 pounds. And they're eating like a 260-pound powerlifter. It's like, come on. Let's just think about this for a minute. Even just look at the testimonials in the book and the case studies. These were heavily muscled people. You know, maybe car backloading is just not appropriate for you or uh, you you need to make some serious modifications. So I think for those, those two, those are the biggest mistakes that I always see is just that either inadvertent or fear of fat with carb night and then carb backloading, just using it in an inappropriate context. I think one of the things I often will hear from patients who are doing carb backloading is um, they feel frustrated because they often hear on the podcast or from you or whoever it's going to be that uh, this notion of kind of learning how your body responds and getting in tune with your body. Mm -hmm. I find that some people, it's like one of the hardest things to try to figure out um, and they're not really, it's hard to kind of find the cues or the clues that you're looking for in terms of trying to kind of tweak or to change things to, um, in response to what you're looking for in those, in that relationship you have with your body. Yeah. And like I, you know, we talk about that a lot on the podcast and I talk about it a lot for myself because, you know, my life's so different, but, uh, what's probably always lost in that con- what's let's uh apologize to the uh, the audience uh cooper's doing some weird stuff in here we don't, we don't know what was doing what was going on there for a minute but uh you know what people don't realize is you know now my life and my diet and my ability to control what my body looks like you know my body fat levels my energy levels my focus you know this has been a very very long journey you know i knew a lot about my body before I even discovered carb backload or carb night. And then learning about carb night and using it, I learned a lot more about my body and actually brought my body to a place where I have much greater control over it. If you're eating a carbohydrate based diet or you're eating carbs several times a day, uh, you are giving your body like this very intense signal to store energy and whether that's glycogen or whether that's uh, extra body fat, so on and so forth. You're, you, you've got this constant signal, and even when you take the carbs out at first, you've still got these competing signals. And it's been years I've been doing this now. You know, I've been controlling my diet in such a way that over the years now, it's really simple. And that, you know, that was, uh, I'm going to say a good probably 
you know, at least eight year process to really understand my, my body to the point that I do now. But, you know, for those eight years of investment, I will forever have control over my health and my body, my energy levels, my cognitive state. Uh, and it, to me, that was worth the investment. I, you know, I didn't learn it in six months. I didn't go three months and then boom, all of a sudden I understood my body. You know, Carb Night gives you this great foundation to where you can do little experiments and learn how your body reacts. And the longer that goes on, just the more you learn what you can get away with and what you can't. I think, you know, that might be a good starting point for some, some people who are trying to, who are struggling with this, especially with carb backloading is, you know, going back to Carb Night and then being consistent about different changes. So uh, yeah. going back and maybe taking a four-week sabbatical from carb backloading, go to Carb Night and then pick one variable that you change. Obviously I'm like the worst person at that. Right. right? But, I know. but, uh, you know, <laughs> look at me call it the black, was it the, the pot calling the kettle like black. black. Yeah. Um, but yeah, take that one variable and then run with it. And, you know, again, like we tell patients, I tell patients the weight didn't come on in six months. It's not going to come off in six months. It's probably a similar scenario here where, right. You know, it's going to take a while before you try to figure this stuff out. Yeah. You're a, you're an individual and then B you're an individual machine that is the most complex metabolic entity we know of on the planet. You're not going to figure it out in a short amount of time, but you can set yourself up to figure to at least be able to figure it out in a realistic amount of time where if you're using, you know, these standard diets or you're using a diet that could cause problems long-term, you know, I don't think that's what people really understand about things like if it fits your macros and they're like, well, you know, it's okay to eat Twinkies because the only thing that matters is the macros that are in the Twinkies. You know, those things will have cumulative effects that will make you sick later on. You're not going to notice them right away. So, you know, if you, if you start to try to use diet plans that are going to fix all of those issues and at the same time, give you just this really solid foundation of health then you can really start to learn about, well, I mean, everything, performance, uh, like I said, cognitive performance, physical performance, endurance, when you can eat carbs, when you can't eat carbs, how many times you can eat carbs. You know, it's, it's just amazing the things you can play with over the years. And that level of knowledge really is the true power in health, is knowing what your body's going to do when you give it certain signals. And that's, I mean, that's... I know we're about an hour and 15 minutes, I think. Yep. So I guess we can cut it off. Was that, was that your signal that you're done? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, I, I, if you have any other thing you want to ask me, by all means, go for it. No, I think we actually covered, covered quite a bit. I think it'll be useful for a lot of people, and that's yeah. always the goal. I'm still waiting for a copy of your first book. It hasn't come into my email inbox yet. A copy? Keep, yeah, your first man. Oh, I'm. Yeah, I, I don't think I can let it out. The the more I started looking at what was in there, I was, no, that one's not coming out. So it came from a point where maybe now it's completely door shut. Yeah, per, pretty much. Really? Well, yeah, because the only other per, it, it could be a curse because the only other person who's seen that died. Oh, come on. You don't, you don't know. You what don't is this, know Gilligan's what, Island and the little tiki, ma- tiki doll? It could, it could be. <laughs> that could be what the situation is. You know, I just don't know. I don't want to take that risk. Or how about like a chapter? Actually, you've seen a chapter. A couple, of, a couple chapters from that book were put on uh, at, well, I think it was Dangerous Hardcore at the time, but they're on athlete.io. <clears throat> okay. They're hidden, hidden in there. They're mixed I in. I see. So, so you're a not giving in. Nope. <laughs> nope. That, that doesn't need to see the light of day. 
trust me, all the future stuff will be so much better. Okay. So it, I'm waiting it, for CBL 2.0. Yeah, that'll be a good one. <laughs> I'm a, I'm actually less excited about that than a than a secret project that I'm working on. That one I'm really excited about. CBL 2. It's like, eh. All right. You know how much excitement can there be in performance? Super nutrition? secret double probation. Is that what it is? Double probation. Yeah. Super secret double probation. Have you heard that term before? No, what what movie? That was in like some movie. I forgot. Was it in? Uh, oh, it was an Animal House. Oh gosh. Yeah, you're definitely showing that you're a decade older than Thank I am you. right now. All right. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that's another episode of Body IO FM. If you know anybody who's having problems with cholesterol level or diabetes or any of these metabolic derangements or even just their body weight. I highly recommend you get them to listen to this podcast if they can stomach all hour and 15 minutes of it. Uh, it'll be well worth their time and maybe even worth the time of their doctor uh, just so they know there are other uh, medical professionals who are using these methods and they're getting great results and uh, maybe it might convince them just to experiment with themselves. And, and yeah, if you are a clinician listening to this and you have questions, I mean, by all means, you know, feel free to try to ping me at my office. I mean, that's always a, a easy route to go. I, I can call the office and leave your email and I'll be more than willing to get back to you or your phone and phone number and I can call back, call you back. So, yep, there you go. You can't get a better offer than that. I don't think <clears throat> so. Cause Rocky's pretty busy. I am. Yeah. I'm no, pretty... I was, I was being totally serious. <laughs> yeah. I was being totally serious. I can't even barely get lunch with him. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was pretty much the only excuse for doing these podcasts. Otherwise I'd never get a chance to talk to him. Well, I want to come and see Cooper, so. Oh, well, of course. Everybody <laughs> wants to see Cooper. It's kind of the, the bane of my existence. I just have to accept the fact that the only reason people talk to me, particularly on the street, is because I have Cooper. But anyway, conversation for another day. And uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. And that's another episode of Body IO FM. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.